Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I once accompanied the three caballeros on their Grand Fiesta tour, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a grade one violinist trying to muddle my way through rudimentary scales so I can adequately perform three blind mice at the local talent fair. Thankfully, I'm being trained by a virtuoso performer who can conjure symphonies with the merest wave of his hand, and can hopefully get me up to standard in record time. I am, of course, talking in a completely off-the-rails metaphor (laughs) about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam! Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm good. I always wanted to be a conductor. I mean, that's not true. That's a complete lie. I don't yeah, know why I, I said that. That's never come across before, but I, <laughs> great. What I mean is I think it looks cool. Fantasia Sikorsky looks cool waving his hands around. It's just a cool that like you wave your hands around and things happen. There's that bit in The Sorcerer's Apprentice where Mickey is like waving his hands to conduct the waves in his fantasy. That looks cool. Yeah, but standing at the front of a group of people waving your hands around to control things, often with a pointy stick. That's what lecturers do. You can have a pointy stick as a lecturer. Well, I, what? I don't know what kind of lectures you've been going to. I'm thinking like oldie timey like professors with a stick and a pointy okay. hat. You know, with a stick. And, you're thinking of a wizard with a stick and a pointy hat. That's what I'm thinking that is. of a sorcerer. <laughs> which is why you like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, which is very fitting for this episode, just to talk about both wizards and conductors to be back. Back, back, back on the Fantasia beat all these movies later. Uh, But before we get to Fantasia, tons has happened since we recorded with Emily Murray for Tarzan many moons ago. Uh, What a lovely, lovely conversation that was. But tons of things in our world have been happening, including the release of The Little Mermaid, the live action-ish remake which I gotta say, people have been asking us about this on Twitter. Uh, I've spoken about it a fair bit on my own Twitter. I really liked it. I thought they did a great job with it. For me, it's easily one of the best of the kind of live action reimaginings that they've done. Loved all the big sequences. Thought the casting was excellent, especially Halle Bailey, Melissa McCarthy too, and David Diggs. You know, I think they really all knocked it out of the park. 
yeah, had a great time with it. We're not going to do a straight up special podcast on it. I'm sure we'll end up discussing it at some point, maybe in a little bit more depth, maybe in the study group, we'll come back to it. Uh, but I also got to see it with Sam. I got to go to the premiere, which was amazing and ludicrously starry. Which you took your wife to. You took your wife to that. <laughs> my actual wife, not my pod wife. Yeah, that was an incredible event. That was so cool. But it was just as fun getting it to see it with you, Sam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a good time. We did that. We did a marathon. We, we hit Fast and Furious. No, Fast X. Yes. And then Little Mermaid. I personally think I preferred Fast X, but <laughs> both experiences were all the better for having you there. Oh, good times. Good times. Also, I don't know about you, but I've had, for the first time, one of the new songs. That has been really stuck in my head for a while. That is the one of the three new songs in The Little Mermaid 2023, which generally I think are all good. For the first time, that is the one, the new Ariel song, hella good. If you haven't seen it yet, if you haven't seen the film, genuinely, if you're quite sceptical about these things and you're like, should I go see this one, should I not? I would say go and see it. I thought it was very good. Everyone's mileage is going to vary, but uh, go see it and listen to for the first time because it's dead good. Well done, everyone involved. And plenty of other stuff is happening. I mean, this is not Disney, but Sam, we're an animation podcast. We cannot not briefly discuss Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, one of the most mind-blowing pieces of animation I've ever seen in my life. One of the most joyous, vibrant, colourful, eye-popping, brain-sizzling films I've ever seen. Spider-Verse, man, it's back! Yeah, it just automatically rockets itself up into the echelons of like the conversation of what is the best animated film of all time. I had a couple of nitpicks with the story, but like animation wise it blows that first Spider-Verse movie out the water, which is so nuts because the rest of the industry is still trying to catch up to that first movie from what like five years ago. We've seen, you know, the bad guys and Puss in Boots and like the new Ninja Turtles movie and they all look really cool and they're all doing their own thing but following Spider-Verse's lead in terms of pushing past the conventions of, like, Pixar-style hyper-real CGI. But this just makes you realise they've all still got a lot of catching up to do. Like, they were still trying to catch up, and Spider-Verse 2 moves the finish line miles down the road. It's it's, it's Miles Morales Morales down the road. road. If you're listening to this podcast, if you're interested in the stuff that we talk about, where we're talking about these films as stories, as pieces of art but also as like we talk about color and composition and how that conveys feeling and emotion that kind of stuff in spider-man across the spider-verse is absolutely off the chain the stuff that they are doing to create emotion and excitement and action and playing with all these kind of not new tools in the animation toolbox but like creating their own tools to do things you've never seen before you have to see Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And you're talking about how it's, you know, changing the game for everybody. That even feels like it's affecting Disney a bit. I can't talk about it too much, but I was at a presentation this morning as we record of 20 minutes of footage from Wish, the upcoming Walt Disney Animation Studios film. Their next movie, post Strange World, is called Wish. It's out in November. And... It's not only Disney's kind of 100th anniversary movie celebrating kind of the whole legacy of Disney, but it has this really interesting, different visual style to it. It's kind of drawing from watercolour textures and specifically from like 
early Disney concept art, which is very interesting. We're going to end up talking about that much more down the line. But that you can't help but see what they're doing with Wish and thinking, oh, I wonder if even Disney is, you know, having to really change up the game to compete with what everyone else is doing right now. Yeah, there is tons happening in the world of animation, uh, not even to discuss Elemental, which I've seen, the new Pixar movie. Sam hasn't seen it yet, but we will probably talk about that by the time the study group episode happens. Everything is happening, let alone the fact that this is our final episode in the Disney Renaissance era. I, I know I've been saying this, I can't believe it's over. We started this a long time ago, <laughs> and much has happened. I've got married in this time. You moved to London during this era, right? When we did Little Mermaid, Just I don't think you moved. It was Little Mermaid was the first episode I recorded in London in this right. room. Yeah. So uh, tons has happened in our personal lives and, you know, that we've had various bits of breaks and things here and there and bonus episodes and stuff. But this has been such a seismic era to discuss on the podcast. And yeah, I'm kind of sad. It's almost over. Almost over, but not quite yet because... We have Fantasia 2000 to discuss. So... Which I insist is part of the Renaissance, and we'll tackle <laughs> that. Others disagree. Yeah. So, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register is complete, and it's time for class to begin. And this time, we're tuning up the orchestra once more with Fantasia 2000. I was going to say 2000's Fantasia 2000. That's how I normally say these things. 1999's Tarzan. 2000's Fantasia 2000. It's also possibly 1999's Fantasia because it's debuted in 99, but it was actually in cinemas for regular people to watch at the very start of the year 2000. So 2000's Fantasia 2000. Here we go. Now, normally, Sam, this is when you sum up the plot of the film. There isn't a plot to this movie. It's a Fantasia movie. Likely everybody listening to this knows what that means. We're basically kind of back in the package era. This is a series of short films set to classical music in the style of Disney's third feature, Fantasia, but just, you know, 2000 y. As you mentioned, this is our last episode in the Renaissance era. Some people would say that the Disney Renaissance ended with Tarzan, with our previous film. You've insisted, I let you decide what the boundaries are of what era is what, where we're going. You said straight up, Fantasy 2000, it's in the Renaissance. And before you explain why, can I guess why? Oh, go on, yeah. Because I had some thoughts while I was watching this, and I mean, obviously, while I was watching it, I couldn't help but agree. I was like, yeah, this should be our last episode of this era, even though it's very different to everything else in the Renaissance. But the things that stood out to me were, this is a film that is so much about the blend of 2D and 3D animation, and if there's a major thing that's come through in the films that we've been watching, everything from Beauty and the Beast up to Tarzan and the technological leaps we were discussing last time regarding how that kind of creates 3D models but uses 2D textures on them. That to and fro between 2D and 3D feels like it is a massive part of this era, and you really feel that in Fantasia. And it is Disney self-consciously reaching into its own history, digging up the classics, doing something in the lineage of classic Disney. And again, that is what the Disney Renaissance has done before this era we had three Disney princess movies. We had Snow White, we had Cinderella, we had Sleeping Beauty. 
And then the Disney princess went away for decades. They looked at all sorts of other different kinds of stories. But then you get to the Renaissance era, and it is The Little Mermaid. It is Beauty and the Beast. It is Pocahontas. You know, that has been an archetype of this era. So for me, it was that like, oh, we're, we're reaching to the future with 3D. We're reaching to the past because this is Fantasia and this is going back to Disney's roots. That makes it feel like a Renaissance movie. Sam, have I swatted up enough? Am I correct in that being the reason for this being here? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Those are all yes. really big. <laughs> Very well good. Very Thank well you. good. Very well good. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, it's warm and it's late. Yes. <laughs> An insight into this uh, process that we're going through here. So, yeah, exactly. If one of the defining features of the Renaissance is that the studio has been returning to the style and the themes of classic Disney, this is a film that does that arguably more explicitly even than any of those films because it is a direct follow-up to a film from Walt's Golden Age and it even includes some segments, some footage from that film as well. So in that sense, it's absolutely part of the renaissance project a rebirth a new approach to old ideas and you were saying as well it also very much falls into that like transitional period and that experimental period where 2d and 3d techniques are starting to be combined and the fact that it's an anthology means that it serves really well, visually speaking, as a transitional point, because it has segments which give us the apotheosis of the Renaissance's visual language, taking the visual idiom, the kind of hyper-realist mode of the Disney Renaissance, and, and doing it to the nth degree. And it also has segments which foreshadow where they will end up. This has the first fully 3D sequence in a Disney film, and their next movie would be a movie which utilised 3D animation exclusively, and eventually that would become all they did. And this has segments which debut styles that they'll never really return to in a feature film as well. So it, it just works really well as that transitional point for that reason. Um, you know, And it marks the end of the decade as well. It marks the end of the century, and that feels very neat. But it's also a film which... I want to talk more later on about just the broader themes of this film, and in many ways it is about endings and it is about change, so it feels really appropriate for this to be the end of the Renaissance. And people cut the Renaissance off before this film for much the same reason that might gloss over The Rescuers Down Under in a, dis in a discussion of the Renaissance. It, it doesn't seem to fit with the formula and it's seen as like an anomalous box office failure, but... First of all, I had an extremely like limited and boutique release, so it's not really fair to consider it on the same box office terms as something like Tarzan. But also, the next film, Dinosaur, is such a distinctive break from anything Disney had ever done before in so many ways. So that makes a lot more sense as the start of the next era. Yeah, it, for me, really feels like a Renaissance movie. I'm really glad you were insistent on this being part of this era. And we obviously did an episode years ago now at this point about the original Fantasia if you've not heard that that is back in the archive you can listen to our third episode all about the original Fantasia and something we discussed there and that they straight up tell you in this film is that the plan was always to update Fantasia over time that it would rumble on rumble around in cinemas they would add sequences they would take sequences away they would swap things in and out they would create new work and that never happened. Why didn't that happen? Did we discuss that last time? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a financial disaster. <laughs> yeah. 
Walt's crazy idea to install a new sound system called Fantasound in every cinema that showed Fantasia proved to be a complete financial disaster. Barely anywhere could show this in the way that he intended. It was a complete folly, and... <laughs> it was the end of that. <laughs> Yeah, it just was not going to happen. But there had been... This wasn't the first attempt to revive that idea. In the 1980s, there was an idea for a film called Musicana, which is not as snappy a title. I do not like that word, Musicana. And the idea was that it would feature stories set in different countries. Every segment will be set in a different country using music from that country. And if you think that could be a recipe for political disaster, for a representational disaster, then you might be right. But the USA segment, I really want to see this. There's some amazing concept art from this. It would feature a jazz band comprised of frogs performing in a bayou and frog versions of Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald. I like frogs in old-timey clothes. Hey, they would come back to frogs and bayous a little bit down the line. You know, that idea never went away. Precisely. And jazz. So, right, Jeffrey Katzenberg, in the chronology of this podcast, yeah. left Disney so long ago, <laughs> but he is just the gift that keeps on giving. Like yeah. It feels like we will never run out of Katzenberg stories. It'll be so long before we stop talking about him. So, in 1989, just after he joined the studio... Katzenberg had an idea for a Fantasia sequel because it was about to be that film's 50th anniversary. So he had, you know, Andre Previn, the conductor? No, I, I have to be honest, I'm not up on my conductors. I'm pretty sure the only one I know is Lydia Tarr. <laughs> and Leopold Sikowski, of course. <laughs> Andre Previn is he's probably most well-known these days in this country for a very funny Morecambe & Wise sketch. Andrew Preview is what they're called. It's UK Comedy Gold. It's probably on UK Gold, if that's still a channel <laughs> that exists. Okay, so Katzenberg wanted Andre Previn, one of the most famous conductors in the world, for his Fantasia sequel for the 50th anniversary of Fantasia. Previn is on tour in East Asia, so Katzenberg flies him in a private jet to Katzenberg's house to pitch him on his idea for a new Fantasia. This is all from Previn's memoirs, by the way. Okay. So Previn rocks up and Katzenberg sits him down and he says, Listen, listen, Andre, I must confess, I have never heard a piece of classical music that I actually like. What? Katzenberg, he's not a classical music guy. He says, oh, God, Look, for I'm... a second I thought you were talking about Previn. I was like, he's a conductor. How do you get in that position? Okay, so Katzenberg... <laughs> that would be really funny. No, Katzenberg is like, I, I do not like classical music. Right. I'm just going to be upfront about that. That tracks. And he said, I, I don't want to do anything classical. He says, Andre, let me level with you. There is only one kind of music written since 1900 that will live forever. And you know what that is? The Beatles. <laughs> Oh, now he's talking. So Katzenberg wanted to make a Fantasia sequel scored entirely with orchestral versions of Beatles songs. What? Oh, so still with an orchestra, but he's like, yeah. it just all has to be the Fab Four. Yeah, so he flew Andre Previn halfway around the world to tell him that to his face, and Andre Previn told him to do one. So that movie <laughs> did not materialise either. So there'd been a few kind of failed attempts at this before we got anywhere near what would become Fantasia 2000. And so when did they decide on Fantasia 2000? I mean, obviously, it is a great name. It's reaching to the past. It sounds futuristic. It sounds like a Disneyland ride that I want to be on. When did Fantasia 2000 come about? Well, eventually, at the end of the day, it didn't have anything to do with Katzenberg. I think once he realised the Beatles were off the table, he just got bored of the whole thing. But 
Roy Disney, the nephew of Walt Disney, who is one of the most powerful people on the Disney board and still has very close ties to the animation studio at this point, had been pushing for a new Fantasia film for a long time because he wanted to fulfil his uncle's vision of the film as an ever-evolving piece. And this did not really get off the ground until Disney started releasing films on home video in the early 90s. So, in 1991, Fantasia found massive success for really the first time in its existence on home video. And, you know, it was a big deal. It was the first time the movie Fantasia had actually turned a profit. So, at this point, Eisner agreed that Roy could make the film using the profits from the video release. That's really interesting. The old Fantasia directly feeding into the new one. It's like its own little ecosystem within the wider ecosystem of Disney. Okay, so before we get into discussing the film itself, are there any particular filmmakers we should be paying attention to here? We have a bunch of different directors working on these shorts, including Eric Goldberg, who we've discussed many times on the podcast before. He did The Genie in Aladdin. He is a friendly happy man who loves making old school 2d cartoons he still animates mickey mouse to this day he did the recent oswald the lucky rabbit short he is like the current old school disney guy still working there today and he's pretty heavily in this film who else should we be looking out for yeah i mean it's to be honest it's not like a glittering array of people in terms of like did they go on to have really interesting careers in animation probably the most notable set of directors other than goldberg on this are the brizzy brothers who are a pair of french animators who started off working on asterix films and then ended up working for disney when they set up a studio in france and they are kind of like real wonderkins they did a lot of great work behind the scenes on Hunchback of Notre Dame and Tarzan, for example, did a lot of the storyboards and the visual development for those films, so they're really cool. But yeah, you've got people like Francis Glebas and Pichotte Hunt and Hendel Butoy, who are all at various different stages in their career at Disney. Some of them have been around for a, a decade or so. Pichotte Hunt worked on films like The Black Cauldron, and then Hendel Butoy and Francis Glebas would go on to work in some capacity on the next kind of batch of Disney features. But I don't think any of these guys ever directed a feature film again after this but you know i think that's partly the point right we'll give some people who obviously have a lot of big ideas who obviously have a good way with a story and a good way with rhythm to direct these segments which even more so than the original fantasia have a a, a real diversity of styles on display well shall we strike up the band shall we hand out orchestral versions of beatles songs to all the musicians we've gathered here today and discuss what was that going to be called like musicana musicana <laughs> <laughs> no let's discuss fantasia 2000 <laughs> almost did the disney versity legends fanfare there <laughs> oh, yeah. careful with that you can't go just flinging that around One of my favourite things when we talked about the original Fantasia was the stuff that I hadn't remembered from watching that as a kid. The stuff that stuck with me obviously was the dinosaur bit, obviously was the terrifying Chernobog, but I didn't remember anything about the presentation of that film, about teeing up the orchestra, about silhouette Mickey standing with Leopold Stokowski. All of that stuff had completely passed me by. And I was fascinated going into Fantasia 2000 of like, what is this movie going to be? How are they going to present this stuff? What are they going to do? 
And I loved, once again, the setup, the presentation of this movie. This is in a similar vein to the previous Fantasia, but everything is amped up. We enter in this kind of cosmic, galactic scene. We see the orchestra being set up in the round, but it's happening in this presumably green screen assisted space where there is animation seamlessly blending in with the actual orchestra surrounding them and lots of interesting edits and transitions between when the orchestra is playing and when the shorts begin. I loved all of that stuff. You know, actually, I should point out if we're talking about noteworthy directors on this film, the wraparound sequences, the live action stuff, was directed by Don Hahn, who is not really a director, but he's one of the most influential figures in the Disney Renaissance because he produced a lot of those early movies. He produced some of the biggest hits like Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King, and he's he's come on to direct this. And Don Hahn, you can still see him all over the place. He directed and narrated Howard, for example, the Howard Ashman documentary. He did the same for Wake and Sleep and Beauty, which is a documentary about the Disney Renaissance, and he does a lot of um, work with the Disney Archive and writes books about the Walt era and stuff like that. So Don Hahn, interesting guy give us some really cool wraparounds. Basically, the visual identity of, of the film as a whole is down to him, I think, so that's pretty pretty cool. Thank you, Don Hahn. Yeah, cheers, Don Hahn. You did a great job. And pretty quickly, we go straight into the first segment of the film, which is Symphony Number no. 5. Sam, who's the hot young talent behind this sweet... <laughs> this sweet, sweet, obscure chap called Ludwig van Beethoven. Oh, the boy. <laughs> Open and strong. So some of these segments don't have the snappiest titles. Symphony Number no. 5 in C minor, Allegro con Brio is the full title of this piece. <laughs> but you will know it as... Here he goes the soloist, and this is maybe the most famous classical piece in the world at the moment. Like, is there a more recognisable introduction in classical music than that? I think if, if you say to someone just, like, hum a classical song, it might be this, right? And that's interesting because this is in many ways explicitly designed to be an analogue to the opening sequence of Fantasia, which is Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor. And that is, by the standards of these movies, quite a niche piece, whereas this is one of the most famous pieces of music in the world. And it just feels like already... I think they take some chances, including with the music later on, but this is a bit more like obvious in some of its selections and yeah. this being a really good example of that yeah the opening with the lead single they're not messing around the thing that i really liked about this is that as you say in complementing the original fantasia this is just an explosion of colors and shapes and motions you know this is very expressionistic animation but the thing that i really liked was that they were doing things with this one that didn't exist back on the original Fantasia. They are using like geometric shapes and like modern arts, all these forms of art that have, you know, arisen in the 60 odd years between the original Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 and bringing that into the film. I, I loved that about it. I thought that was a really cool choice. It's a great little comparison piece to look at these side by side, and I've done this with my students before in class as well. I put this side by side with the scene from Fantasia and a film by Oscar Fischinger, who was an abstract animator who was hired to 
helped develop the scene for the original Fantasia. And he left Fantasia because Walt was trying to push it away from pure abstraction and towards something a little bit more representative. So in Fantasia, it's not just shapes, it's shapes that evoke the instruments that they're supposed to represent in a visual way. And for Fischinger, that was like getting away from the purity of, of what his films typically were, which was much more simplistic and abstract. And this obviously goes even further. So you see Disney developing in a technological way compared to what we had in Fantasia, but also this is not a studio which is going to take the swing of doing a basically abstracted piece to open this big movie. Like, yes, it is just shapes, but there are goody shapes and there are baddie shapes. There are evil triangles, red triangles, black triangles, swamping the screen. Yeah, and there's like good triangles, cute triangles, there's like a little baby triangle and they're oh. all fighting each other. <laughs> and it's it's cute and it's fun, but I don't know, I just think that's interesting that because they open this with the same Dean's Taylor introduction from Fantasia where they say like some music exists to tell a story and some music is just music for music's sick and then instead of attempting to do that they give us music which tells a story with the kind of veneer a nod towards the visual idiom of of abstract animation i'm not saying it's bad but i just think it's like that's interesting how they're trying to nod to something walt did but they're not quite going as far in that direction yeah it feels like it is you know calibrated a bit more for a contemporary audience at the time and speaking of which We've talked a little bit about the presentation of this film, but I was going into this going like, oh, what are they going to do? Who's going to be hosting this movie effectively? Who is going to be the human face of Fantasia 2000? And we get to the end of Symphony Number no. 5, and I'm squinting at my TV like, is that Steve Martin? Is that Steve Martin? Is he... <laughs> Is he hosting Fantasia 2000? What is going on? He does his little comedy bit about not being able to play the violin. I did like his little throwaway line of, hey, can I get another one of these little sticks? I thought that was funny. I like a bit of Steve Martin. Uh, I feel like you're not as much of a fan. We've discussed this off mic before. Yeah, we were talking about this before. I do not think Steve Martin is funny. That might be one of my hottest takes. I think uh, this is one that I'm expecting tweets about. I do not find him funny in anything he has ever done. I've not seen everything he's ever done, but he has never once made me laugh. I do not get it. He is just a comedic anathema to me. Have you seen The Man With Two Brains? Because that is the one in particular of that like classic Steve Martin era that my dad showed me when I was a teenager, and I absolutely cracked up. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember watching that with him, and being in the era of like cheaper by the dozen Steve Martin going like, oh no, <laughs> this is why people think Steve Martin is hilarious. Now, my dad also showed me The Man With Two Brains. Okay. Because he is also a Steve Martin hater, and he said, this is the one good Steve Martin movie. <laughs> and I agree that it's a good movie, but I'm not sure that I laughed at anything that Steve Martin did. You didn't laugh at the poem, Oh pointy bird, oh pointy pointy, <laughs> anoint my head, anointy nointy. That I is... just don't think he's a funny guy. I watched like his Muppet show episode and mm -hmm. like it's hard not to be funny on the Muppets, but I think he manages it, and that is like a classic beloved Muppet show episode, and I just do not get it. I just cannot laugh at Steve Martin. It's never happened, and I don't think it ever will. Not that he's got the best material in the world to work with on his one minute long <laughs> interruption of Fantasia two thousand, but Ah, I could have done without him. But in general, you were surprised by the celebrity guests who take us through this whole thing. 
Yeah, because Steve Martin then doesn't come back and we get other faces coming in. <laughs> Some of them people from the world of classical music, but then Bette Midler comes in for a minute then. Oh my god, Darth Vader shows up. James Earl Jones, I know on this podcast I should call him Mufasa, but it's Darth Vader. James Earl Jones comes in to introduce the carnival of the animals later on. Penn and Teller. I was like, why are Penn and Teller here? And then as soon as the Sorcerer's Apprentice began post their introduction i was like okay that's why you get penn and teller that's that's great uh yeah angela lansbury doing the firebird at the end it's such a like how did they pick these people well i guess angela lansbury was mrs potts yeah james will jones was mufasa steve martin hasn't done disney at this point has he not in animation certainly Uh, maybe katzenberg was still involved and he was just phoning up random people from his big old rolodex while swigging from the diet coke well now that you mention it steve martin is in the prince of egypt so i'm surprised eisner let him in fantasia (laughs) 2000 because he's a dreamworks traitor steve martin then comes in and he sets up the pines of rome which as you hear in the introduction sounds like it's going to be in ancient rome with pines and instead it's about flying whales which you know is a lovely thing i quite enjoyed this one i liked the flying whale one are you a fan of this one this is one where my memory of it was a lot better than what it actually was mm-hmm. you know, I, I first watched this film a long time ago and that image from the first time i saw it of whales breaching the surface of the ocean and flying off and keeping on going until they hit space that is like magnificent as an image as an idea that has like always stuck with me i think about it often you know just this this thing of like immense heft and beauty and and nobility just choosing to exit you know just choosing to break beyond the boundaries that we believed it had and, and doing it with such immense like mass and volume there's something so majestic about that but then i watched it and it's like oh this is kind of weightless lumpen cgi for a lot of it i mean it's hard because if you did exactly the same thing today you would execute it in a different way and it would maybe feel a little bit smoother but at the time this must have been relatively mind-blowing and the thing i really liked is remind me what was the name of the technology that allowed tarzan to happen all of the vine swinging tarzan stuff what was that called that's deep canvas deep canvas i imagined was how they did the whale stuff because the whales were 3d rendered models and yet they looked like they were painted like the textures of them was like it was hand painted was it a similar technique do you know that was used there to the vines in tarzan yeah, I think it was, and it's especially clear on the kids, on the child whale, who is a lot more expressive and cartoonified and has, for example, like big, not quite cartoon, but like big, obvious eyes, big white eyes, which the other whales don't have. And, and they aren't as expressive and they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be majestic and the child is supposed to be the character. And I think the child holds up a lot better because they've gone slightly more exaggerated with it and it's the big lads who are just like feel quite (laughs) stiff and and lumpy but then conversely i love what the big lads are doing i love the rise from the ocean and i'm not a big fan of the real bulk of the plot here which is that the kid gets lost and has to find his way back swims in a hole and then he's on the other side of the ice and he has to get out i mean essentially it's not as exciting as it should be from a flying whale story but it it sticks the landing you know yeah it builds up to the end like i would have been happy with just flying whales because i think overall this is like the second longest segment after 
Rhapsody in Blue, which we'll get to, but it has so much less incident than Rhapsody in Blue, far fewer beats than Rhapsody in Blue. I think if you cut the kid out, then you've just got this quite inspirational torn poem of these whales breaching and continuing in flight. But the baby's the cutest one. Yeah, I know, I'll I know. get rid of the baby. I think he could be there, but he doesn't need an arc, you know? <laughs> also, it's another one on the tally of Disney whales. We had Willy the opera singing whale in... Was it Fun and Fancy Free? Make My Make Music. My music, maybe, that was. Yeah. Way back in the package era... Monstro the whale going back to Pinocchio. Now we have more Disney whales. Why is that not a brand? We've got Disney princesses. We've talked a lot about Disney horses, Disney owls, Disney whales, officially a thing. Yeah, you've got the big whale from Finding Nemo who goes, wow. I mean, you're the one crossing over into Pixar territory here. I don't know if that's against our rules. You're the lecturer, you tell me. Well, Disney princesses have Merida from Brave, and I do think... If we include the whale from Finding Nemo, then there's no reason why we can't include Payakan the Mighty Tulkoon. Yes, because space whales are a thing. You know, I'm a huge fan of Avatar the Way of Waters, Payakan the Mighty Tulkoon. Basically, a big whale who befriends a boy and they talk to each other with their minds and also with their voices. At one point in the middle of Avatar the Way of Water just whale subtitles appear on the screen and it is one of the greatest things in the history of cinema i genuinely love Pyacan. Pyacan is my boy i think of like whales in the sky makes me think of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy but i think that's a whale crashing down to earth well oh well no there are there's flying dolphins in hitchhiker's guide there's flying dolphins but there's also a whale who is contemplating the meaning of life as he's falling closer and closer to the earth Space whales, I don't know, I feel like that's a big thing in sci-fi and fantasy. That's like a almost a trope. In the same way, space turtles are a thing as well. And in Kingdom Hearts, oh, Monstro is floating in space. Oh. In Kingdom Hearts, you, you fly in like interdimensional space between all the Disney worlds and you bump you into and get swallowed by Monstro, who's just floating through space aimlessly. <laughs> and then there's a level inside his guts. Ooh, yeah. amazing. Well, it's a fun segment. Could do with a little bit more going on. But if you want a lot of stuff going on in a Fantasia 2000 segments, boy, have we got the short for you. It is called Rhapsody in Blue. And I'm just going to throw it out there. I thought this was absolutely masterful. I've I've watched this sequence twice now. I actually rewatched the first half hour of the film the other day. And the Rhapsody in Blue sequence, holy mackerel, it is amazing. So this is George Gershwin's music, Disney once again tackling jazz, and they're using the art style of the illustrator, the very famous illustrator, Al Hirschfeld, and they are tying together these two early 20th century American art forms in a short that is itself a homage to early 20th century America, specifically New York, about the skyline and the people living there and the sound of jazz and building the city up, the the effort that it takes to build the city up, the hustle and bustle of living on those streets of people with insane amounts of wealth, people scrambling to get by, all in this one short that just looks completely incredible front to back, moves like nobody's business, I was completely captivated by the Rhapsody in Blue sequence. Like, If you're listening to this having not seen Fantasy 2000, 
I don't blame you. It's only an hour long. We haven't said this yet. It's like an hour and ten minutes. It's really not a very long watch. But if you are like, oh, maybe I'll check something out from this episode, watch the Rhapsody in Blue sequence. It is amazing. Are, are you in agreement with me, Sam? Were you as bowled over by this as I was? Yeah, this is the best thing in the film. At one point, I might have said the second best thing in the film, but these days, it's the it's the best thing in the film. I, oh God, I just don't know where to start. This is one of my favourite pieces of music in existence anyway. I'm obsessed with Rhapsody in Blue. I've got, like, five different orchestrations of it in my really? Apple Music library. I'm a huge fan of this piece. Genuine question, like, are there different interpretations of this, or do people just play it differently? What are those versions that you've got? It's kind of just from different periods of time, so you get different, like, recording quality, and then you also get... There's versions out there that Gershwin kind of helped orchestrate from back in the day, and then there's other conductors take on that. There's the version from Manhattan, which is really cool, and there's uh, there's a Leonard Bernstein version as well, the version that he arranged. Yeah, I can, but I can listen to it all day. And, you know, it is rooted in jazz, so there's, like, certain liberties that you can take with it in ways that you can't with most classical music or people don't tend to with most classical music but um i put this on this is like working music for me because there's like different rhythms to it as well so i can be like i'm chilling and then and i'm typing shit i love it i love what it makes me think of i love the opening sequence to the the woody allen film manhattan which is you know probably its most prominent cinematic use Although there's another cinematic appearance of it that I want to touch on as well. Yeah, that kind of really solidified the association between this and New York City. Like, it was written and performed in New York. It had long been discussed and interpreted as a portrait of, like, a day in the life of New York City. And Manhattan, I feel, really cemented that. And then this is just a perfect visual interpretation of that, where they've taken the Hirschfeld style, you know, a a style which really lends itself to what they're doing. The animation style is being, in in a way that it always should be, dictated by the demands of what the story is and what is the best visual approach to conveying this this narrative and, and, and these emotions that we're trying to convey. Oh, I'm just, I love it. I could talk about it all day. So Eric Goldberg directed this. Yeah, our boy Eric Goldberg, who I kind of want to adopt as our Disneyversity mascot. <laughs> He's just a chill dude who loves to draw Mickey Mouse. And he is in the film. He is in the film during the James Earl Jones sequence sketching in the forefront. So I think it's possible that he could be a Disneyversity legend Disneyversity because he does legend. appear on screen in the film. Oh, he is a, a regular Disney legend, but I think he should be a Disneyversity legend. Do you know what? I co-sign on that. I did have one, uh, not to skip ahead too much, but I did have a potential candidate from the Donald Duck Noah's Ark segment, oh, okay. which was the chameleon just because I like chameleon, I think I already brought a chameleon to the table on The Lion King. So yeah, yeah, I am yeah. very happy to put the chameleon to one side. I think we do it. Eric Goldberg has to be our Disneyversity legend for this episode. I'm going to do the fanfare to make it official. He's in the canon. What a dude. What a guy. And yeah, he's smashed it out of the park with this short. But we must make it clear he is not in the Disneyversity legend hall of fame as a director. He is in there for his extremely brief comedy skit with James Earl Jones. <laughs> As the character 
Eric Goldberg. <laughs> exactly. So, Eric Goldberg directed this, inspired by the art of Al Hirschfeld, which was also a huge influence on the genie in Aladdin. The way that Hirschfeld can capture the essence of a celebrity with a single fluid line is the basis of the visual characterization of the genie and his various celebrity impersonations. So, Goldberg's already in that Hirschfeld space, and it meant he was the perfect guy to take this on and build this whole Hirschfeldian world. It's almost like this film takes place inside the genie, in a way. <laughs> Imagine that. All of these characters are little genies. Especially, I mean, it's Rhapsody in blue. A lot Seriously. of the colours that play here are blues, purples. The thing that I liked about it was that that Al Hirschfeld style is lots of wiggly lines and curves. All the characters are kind of drawn in these big exaggerated curves not too dissimilar to the style of Hercules, really, in terms of taking yeah. a cartoonal style. Not cartoonal as in Looney Tunes, but like newspaper cartoon, non-moving, non-animated cartoon, but taking that style of drawing and bringing it to life through animation, you kind of feel that in what it's doing in Rhapsody in Blue. And at the same time, in its evocation of Manhattan, it is drawing in lots of angular lines like I love the opening of this sequence where as the you can add me to your recording Sam of Rhapsody in Blue <laughs> play that whenever you like uh, but as that is playing the line that it's creating is becoming the Manhattan skyline and you have this juxtaposition of harsh angular lines and curvy, wavy lines of the characters in the city. It just creates this really interesting dynamic, I think. So, who is your favourite character in this, right? Because there are all sorts of humans who we follow through this. So there is a drummer who, by day, is having to work on building the skyscrapers, but is just waiting to get to the evening to be able to play in the jazz band. We have a posh couple, a lady in a big coat and her husband carrying a load of boxes. We have a posh little girl who goes and does a ballet class. We have a down-on-his-luck guy who can't get a job and is boozing it in the bars. We have all these characters, and Sam, I will not accept, well, Manhattan's kind of a character in the movie. Who's your favourite human character in this short? It's a tricky one because my favourite character has my least favourite storyline. Right. The worst of these storylines by a distance is the nagging wife storyline where this beset upon husband just wants to get away from his nagging wife who's spending too much of his money and won't let him have any fun. Wives, huh? Am I right? <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, she gets hoist up by a crane, which is a fairly disproportionate punishment, and he gets to go and, like, party with some chorus girls. So I don't love that storyline and the gender politics of it, obviously, but I do love the character. He's got a great design, and he gets to have this, like, fantasy sequence where he flies through the air. All of the characters have names, by the way, from production. Uh, he is known as Flying John. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> And he is modelled after Disney's in-house historian John Culhane, who was also the model for a different Disney character. He is the basis for Snoops, the henchman character in The Rescuers. <laughs> how, how could I forget? <laughs> deep trivia. Uh, do you have a favourite character from Rhapsody in Blue before I get on to more deep trivia? Um, I enjoyed the mischief of 
the little girl. Yeah. I enjoyed her journey through the city. I liked the story of the drummer. Kind of the story is through him. He wakes up at the beginning of his day. He has his drumsticks in hand. And then he has to go and work through the day before he can get to the jazz band in the evening. I love those shots of him drilling rivets into the structure of the skyscraper and kind of going down each level when he gets to the end of each beam and and then drops down a beam, drops down a beam. I loved all of that stuff. So he was really cool. Was there almost like an Abu reference in this? There is a little monkey in this sequence who I have in my notes reminded me of Abu. Also, not a single character, but the moment when, as you say, there's all these movements through the music itself, and when we go down into the subway, and like all the characters are smushed together in one mass, in one form, and they're all like wiggling together and holding the handles of the carriage, that's not one character, but together they kind of become a character. I thought that was such an incredible image. Those kind of moments I find really cool, because it's in those moments where this is less of a narrative short and more of a portrait of a city in a slightly less concrete way, although an extremely concrete way because the city is made of concrete. Uh, (laughs) For a while, and at times, this sequence gives the impression of a broad panorama in the vein of a lot of the original Fantasia segments like the Nutcracker or the Rite of Spring or the Pastoral Symphony, or something like... Um, films from the period in which this was set and in which the song was composed, like uh, Walter Ruttman's Berlin or Sheila and Strand's Manhattan, these like modernist films which were documentary like city symphonies which took footage from all over a city and wove it into a narrative of a day in the life of that setting and for a while this like verges on that and i really really like that i like the stories as well but i like the manhattan is the main character take as well but you do still get these clear narratives that emerge that force the way through which obviously like reflect the myth of the american dream they're all about people who want something who want to much like the whales little thematic tie who want to surpass the station that life has given them and it's interesting because there's one guy who wants to be a construction worker and a construction worker who wants to be a drummer they're all just trying to surpass the circumstances that they've been placed in which is you know an iteration of the american dream which is synonymous with the new york sentence so it is a story of new york in so many ways I'm always fascinated by like early 20th century America, the idea of New York being a city that was literally like built over a handful of decades that just didn't exist and kind of built itself through people and total tangent. But while we're connecting this all to music, one of my favourite albums of recent years is Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City, which for some reason just evokes that period completely for me. In my degree, in my English degree, it was that early 20th century literature that really captured me as well. Yeah, it's such a fascinating era to evoke, and I think this short does it in a fascinating way. Yeah, I mean, it's a piece which is explicitly modern. It's a piece of music which is explicitly modern. The the subtitle for this composition is An Experiment in Modern Music. And it's modernist with a capital M in its composition and it's also, you know, modern in its context. So it's appropriate that it soundtracks the only overtly modern sequence with with an overtly modern setting in a pair of films whose influence and trappings are so thoroughly classical. This is also a composition which has historical ties to cinema 
and to animation as well. And you can do a weird like six degrees of separation you can get from Rhapsody in Blue to Walt Disney through a series of connections <laughs> that I can weave. Okay, what, what are those connections? What are those degrees? So Rhapsody in Blue was commissioned by a guy called Paul Whiteman, who was one of the most famous composers of the day, and he was known for conducting orchestral jazz. He was known as the King of Jazz. Uh, he was a Caucasian man, just uh, so not really the king of jazz in any sense, but that's what people called him. And he commissioned Rhapsody in Blue, and he also made a very opulent vanity film called The King of Jazz, which was released by Universal, and it was basically a review film featuring lots of different performances and choreographed sequences set to Whiteman's arrangement of, of like jazz and swing music. So he commissioned Rhapsody in Blue, not for that film, but it did feature in that film. And that film also featured an animated sequence. Uh, it was the first piece of colour animation, of, of photographed colour animation in, in two-strip Technicolor. So two-strip Technicolor, it's basically only red and green, and the colours in between. The whole film is in two-strip, and it's it's gorgeous. But it was the first colour animated film out of Hollywood and it featured Paul Whiteman and Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Walt Disney's first cartoon character creation before Mickey Mouse. Disney didn't direct it, it was after he left Universal and the studio retained that character. But there you go, there's your Gershwin to Walt (laughs) Disney link. So you go Gershwin, Paul Whiteman, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, Walt Disney, that's four degrees. Four degrees, not even six. Nailed it. Well, we could talk about this segment for hours, honestly. I feel like we've scratched the surface, but let's plow on. Let's talk about, oh, do we have to talk about the Steadfast Tin Soldier, <laughs> a.k.a. Piano Concerto Number 2? This this was not my favourite segment. I thought it looked beautiful. This is the one with the creepy-ass jack-in-the-box who is kind of leering after this ballet dancer figure and this little tin soldier with one leg. They all come to life at night. It's, uh, I was about to say, it's a precursor to Toy Story. We're five years post-Toy Story. What am I talking about? All the toys come to life at night. The jack-in-the-box is creepy. The ballet dancer is being harassed. The tin soldier hops about and gets into scrapes to try and save the ballet dancer. Didn't love this one from a story perspective. Did not like the creepy jester in the Jack in the Box. The one thing that I do want to mention, though, is that this is a very specific one of like the hybrid 2D, 3D animation. And the 3D animated ballet dancer at the time probably looked really cool and now looks very outdated. But the 2D, 3D hybrid stuff and the textures they're using in the colours genuinely reminded me of the Wish footage that I saw today. I was going to say the same thing. It is like 3D models, but 2D textures with a bit of a watercolour finish. It looks like Wish. It's weird. (laughs) I mean, great, they've come back around to it, but like Wish feels very new, but to see it being used in this way here, obviously one of the touch points for Wish, not to bang on about this too much, is a short they made, I think about a decade ago, called Paper Man. So they've been playing around with this style in various formats. Obviously, this is a short here in Fantasy 2000. Paper Man is a short. Wish is going to be a full feature animated in this style. But yeah, I I was fascinated having seen that Wish footage this morning and thinking, 
this looks like the creepy jack-in-the-box sequence from Fantasia 2000. And I think the impulse is the same, right, is the thing. So it looks like this film that's being made all these years later, but the impulse is still to, for different reasons, create a 3D film which visually tessellates with the rest of the Walt Disney animation catalogue. And here it's because it's the Walt Disney Animation Studios' first entirely cgi sequence right wow oh so this is the one that you teed up at the beginning this is full cgi yeah there's nothing here that's being drawn on paper by hand at any stage as far as i'm aware obviously there's concept art and stuff like that but what you see on screen is is cgi and they've not gone full toy story they've not gone full pixar at least with the textures right because it has to fit with the broader visual world of Fantasia 2000 and even bigger than that with what you expect from the Walt Disney Animation Studio which to an extent is flatness certainly in the characters so at this point it's a middle ground between what they did and what they maybe at some point are going to do although I don't think anyone at this point could predict that they would end up making exclusively 3D films at any point in the future just yet so it is interesting to compare it to Wish because that's a film that's doing the same thing but because it's looking backwards consciously to what is now an almost extinct mode of animation and trying to blend it with what they are now known for and what people now expect from them, which is 3D. So yeah, another reason why it's a good point to end the Renaissance because it's, it's so prophetic of yeah. where they would go. It's like they've taken two different paths to reach the same end point together. Yeah. But it's not quite good, is it? You're coming down from the high of Rhapsody in Blue. You know, there's no competing with that. Although I will say the one after this, the Carnival of the Animals, it is very short. But I thought this one was so sweet. I thought it was super great. This is the one with the flamingos dancing and one of the flamingos has a yo-yo. It dares to ask the question, what would happen if you gave a yo-yo to a flock of flamingos? And the answer is... Loads of fun, a bunch of colour, something that feels a bit like the South America films from the package era. It has a bit of a Saludos Amigos, a little bit of a Three Caballeros vibe, if not in the music itself. And because it's all these flamingos, it kind of took me back to our Disney versity legend from Aladdin, the confused Derpy flamingo. flamingo. <laughs> yeah. And it has a bit of, I just can't wait to be king about it as well, in like yes. the flatness and, and the colours that are being used here. Yeah, I've just got one note for this literally one bullet point and it's just the word sick i was just watching it thinking yeah this is sick the guys your your tricks cool as ice oh. man your yours are cool it may not have always seemed that way but yeah <laughs> this was the year 2000 as well this was prime yo-yo season i had a pro yo too i think i missed the boat on that when i was a kid oh. i'm not the most dexterous person you can imagine me with a yo-yo you seem like you could rock a yo-yo. I, yeah, I have to say, I could imagine Sam Summers plus yo-yo equals a level of chaos. Uh, but this is the thing, you're only a little bit younger than me, but I think you must have missed the yo-yo craze, which freaks me out, because that was, that was huge for me. Maybe I was on the younger end of the yo-yo craze. It was a big deal. Everybody had a yo-yo. The younger end of the yo-yo craze is a really satisfying <laughs> sentence. <laughs> So this is another Eric Goldberg, and uh, it's it? also the yes. <laughs> oh man, our guy! And it's also the second time on this podcast that we have discussed the Carnival of the Animal Suite by Camille Sanson, because this contains the piece Aquarium, which is the inspiration for the overture to Beauty and the Beast. 
This is the finale. What we get in Fantasia 2000 is the finale of a, a much longer suite, okay. which contains segments inspired by different animals. And this one is all about chaos. It's all the animals coming together. Uh, and the aquarium is obviously about fish. And it goes... <laughs> Although in my head, I'm not sure if that's Aquarium or if that's the Overture for Beauty and the Beast because they are very similar. There we go. It all comes full circle. Now, this is the point where we get Penn and Teller popping up to introduce the Sorcerer's Apprentice, which we discussed at length, I think, in the previous Fantasia episode. I don't think we have much to add to the short itself other than the fact that it is still a complete anxiety nightmare come to life. But I am sat here looking at my... Fantasia Mickey Lego minifigure recently released for the Disney 100 blind bags. A little bag that has a minifigure in. You don't know which one you've got. You just have to hope for the best unless you go to the Lego shop and say, I specifically am looking for this one. And then they feel all the bags. They go crunching all the bags until they hopefully find the one that you're after. And uh, we went hunting, didn't we, Sam? <laughs> for specific Lego yeah, minifigures. We went on the day that the Disney Lego minifigures were released to the Leicester Square Lego store, and it was chaos. It was a complete scrum <laughs> Can around this say, pile of bags. <laughs> we are dedicated to both Disney and Lego, but we also just happened to be in town on the day that they were released. And we were like, yeah. why not? They're right there, let's go. Let's get our pick Yeah, we didn't, we didn't go for that purpose. But uh, several people seem to have, and most of those people were teenage girls. So we yes. were slightly out of place among this particular crowd feeling all these bags. But I also <laughs> think, because we're clearly the oldest people there, we had a certain level of authority when it came to parlaying with the members of staff. So they were very helpful to us. We were like, <clears throat> we want Aurora, because she comes with a little cosplay owl. We want <laughs> Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, because of course we do. <laughs> what are the other ones we got? We, we wanted Robin Hood. Yeah, I got a Robin Hood. I also got a Prince John, who comes with yeah. a lovely little cloak. And obviously we both wanted the Sorcerer's Apprentice, Mickey, which was what everyone was looking for. Also, I think most of the other people there were looking for Stitch. There was a Stitch with a couple of ray guns. Ben is not interested emphatically in that. He's like, who is this guy? Who is this guy? I've never seen this film. I'm not allowed to watch this film yet. And so Sam and I rock up and we're like, oh yeah, we're looking for these and we're looking for a Mickey. And all the Lego staff are shaking their heads like, you're not going to get a Mickey. Everybody wants the Mickey. There's very few of them. We think they're all gone. Uh, Yeah, but we'll help you find the rest. And then at some point, the lovely, very helpful staff, they're feeling bags, and one of them goes, I've got a Mickey, hands it to Sam. I'm like thrilled for Sam. Absolutely great. But I'm sitting there going, where's my, where's my Mickey? Like, what's going on? Where's my Mickey? And we're there for, let's face it, a considerable while longer. This was quite an extended <laughs> trip to the Lego shop. Well, we're doing a little bit of like feeling bags and seeing what we can find, but it's it's mostly the Lego staff who I think are trained to some degree to feel out specific pieces so they can tell what's in each bag. And I just want to give a specific shout out to somebody who's definitely not listening to this podcast, but just in case they are, there was a man who worked at the Lego shop and after us being in there for a while, just happened to walk past us and held out a bag to me and said, gentlemen, a Mickey. And we absolutely <laughs> lost it. It was an incredible presentational flourish. 
We got the minifigures <laughs> that we were after. I now have on my shelf my Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey next to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, next to Prince John, next to Robin Hood, next to, not in this line, but from the Muppets release last year, Kermit the Frog. All the boys are together. Disney property. Yeah, exactly. It's all part of the family. Uh, yeah, gentlemen and Mickey, we have our Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickeys. And it's such an appropriate story because this is the part of Fantasia 2000 where Walt Disney Animation Studios and their mouthpiece pen of Penn and Teller turn to the audience and say, Gentlemen, a Mickey. (laughs) (laughs) It is not a new Mickey. It is an old Mickey, one that you are familiar with, one that you know well. One that really is the only example here of what Walt originally wanted to do, which was cycle new films and old films in and out. So originally there was going to be a lot more. Originally about half of this was going to be old stuff and I think that's why the film that we get is slightly shorter. They decided people don't want to sit through all this and you know because they do look noticeably older as well so this one remains as a reference to that original conceit and it just feels like the ultimate gentleman and mickey (laughs) moment yeah perfect timing for those minifigures to be released they are still on sale now if you happen to find one if you get some of these tell us which ones you managed to get uh but also for us doing this episode perfect timing uh we do get a little bit of mickey in this Fantasia 2000 as well, because just like he tapped on the shoulder of Leopold Stokowski, he comes to the front of the orchestra for this film as well. And while the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence is the only throwback sequence from the original Fantasia, we do get a bit of a throwback in the Pomp and Circumstance sequence, because this is the one, as I mentioned before, where they go, what if Noah's Ark, but Donald Duck? Donald Duck is in this. I love that little moment where it's like, Donald, you gotta get ready! And Donald's in the shower and he's like, what? Ah, uh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, I bet you and Lizzie have had that moment. Yeah, many times. What? So, this was also cool because this was originally shown in like IMAX with Dolby surround sound, so it actually felt like Mickey was running behind the audience as he was running around oh, that's to, cool. to find Donald Duck. That's pretty cool. So, we get Donald Duck here. We also, crucially, get Daisy Duck. Yeah. And this means that she is now one of the group of classic cartoon Disney characters who have appeared in these feature films at one point or another because we've had Mickey, we've had Donald and we've had Goofy at various times. So that means, trivia question answered, the only sentient member of the core Disney cast who doesn't appear in a Walt Disney Animation Studios feature film is Minnie Mouse. No, Of course, not counting Pluto because he doesn't have a soul. Uh, You also have forgotten a certain somebody in an ironic (laughs) twist of fate. (laughs) How could you forget Oh, God. Now Ben's the Pete police. I can't believe it. I've been hoisted by my own (laughs) Petard. The Pete police have come in and say, hey, justice for Pete. He's in a goofy movie, not a Walt Disney Animation Studios movie, Sam, as we've discussed at length. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't believe you're trying to erase Pete from history. How dare you? I'm over here trying to preserve the memory of Pete. (laughs) And there you are, casting him to the side. Peg leg Pete. He's he's older than Mickey. (laughs) He's older than Mickey, he is, it's true. Why did you say that like Mickey Mouse? (laughs) He's older than Mickey, it's true. I've lost I've lost everything. I can't oh, there's no more of me left. Oh god 
Can't believe it. Can't believe I can't it. Stop talking like Mickey. And the more I talk like Mickey, the more it makes me laugh. But the more I laugh, the more I talk like Mickey. <laughs> oh, this. Okay. Well, while Sam gathers himself, this is a pretty straight up take on Noah's Ark. To pomp and circumstance, or as I think of it, because of decades living in the UK, Land of Hope and Glory mm. is sort of what the tune is. If Pomp and Circumstance doesn't mean anything to you, but it's the Noah's Ark story. There are animals coming two by two. I'm kind of confused because it begins with the Ark and there's a big beardy man on the Ark and it's like, okay, that's Noah, I guess. But then at a certain mm. point, it's like, Donald Duck is Noah? Who is Noah? Was that God on the boat? Is there God in a Disney short? And I was sitting there going, oh, this is kind of interesting. Is this the first time Disney has very explicitly brought a Christian Bible story to the screen? What is happening here? And then the screen cuts to Donald Duck naked on a hammock. (laughs) And I was like, I'm overthinking this. This is Donald Duck snoozing on a hammock with his bits out. Presumably, uh, having chased some human women around on a beach for a while. It's kind of fun. All the human women are dead. A beach is the last place you want to be if you're a human woman, because you're going to be the first to go in the flood. No, it's. I think it's Noah. It's not the Judeo-Christian God. It's Noah. Okay. And Donald Duck is his mate. He's like his assistant, but he's also a duck. Because the animals are going in two by two, so he and Daisy, they're the two ducks. But then there's also another like non-anthropomorphic pair of ducks in a funny little nod to this whole question of like what is actually going on with these Mickey Mouse characters interacting with, with just regular animals all the time. So, yeah, it's Noah's Ark with Donald Duck, all right. But would you believe that's not what it was always conceived as? Oh, really? What was it going to be? So... You were saying in this country, we mainly know this song as Land of Hope and Glory. Yes. In America, it's the graduation march, right? Okay. They play at high school and college graduations. And the inclusion of this piece, which is not, I understand, a very well-regarded piece of classical music. From what I've read, I think the scholars would consider this as the kids say, mid. (laughs) But Michael Eisner insisted on using pomp and circumstance after he attended his son's high school graduation. He was like... This is the one. Everyone knows this. Everyone in America can relate to this song. And his pitch for the sequence was that it has to be some kind of stately procession, like a graduation march. And he wanted it to be a stately procession in which all of the Disney princesses walk arm in arm with the Disney princes carrying their babies. Oh, okay. Yeah. He wanted to make the ultimate multiverse sequel to all the Disney princess movies. Yeah, and confirming that they have all gotten married and had babies and had the thing that you have before you have babies, which I think was one of the reasons why they didn't want to follow through with this. You just clicked Ben's face, just clicked what I meant by that. (laughs) Ask your parents. So... There would, in addition to all the Disney princesses, be cameos from loads of Disney characters. Like, every feature film would be represented. And Pete and his wife. The plan... With a little baby Pete. Yeah, from the Goof Troop series. He has a wife and a baby Pete, PJ. So Pete maybe would be in there. But the core of the plan, the gimmick, was not only would I have all these characters, but we will get the animators who originally worked on them to animate them again. Which means we need to get the surviving nine old men back in the studio. So 
apparently they got Mark Davis, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston and Ward Kimball in. And Eisner showed them the storyboards for the sequence. And after an awkward silence, Ward Kimball, the most outspoken of the nine old men, said, That's the stupidest frickin' idea I've ever heard. But he didn't use frickin'. And that was the end of that chapter. Incredible. The nine old men were like, No, we're not doing that. (laughs) So dumb on so many levels. Yeah, so that was Eisner's main contribution to Fantasia 2000. Incredible. And instead, we get this. I'm going to say tonally confused Donald Duck Noah's Ark segment, where on the one hand, we're having a laugh with Donald Duck, and he's like yeeting a dove into the air for some reason, and at the same time then, there's a really horrifying shot of Donald's house being destroyed by the flood that's quite upsetting. It's weird. Uh, Also raises questions of like, we can't go down this rabbit hole, but there are all the land animals in the Ark, but then all the fish and all the crabs in the world get to survive. There's like all these crabs on a rock, so it's like we now only have two rabbits, but we have a million crabs in the sea. How does that work? I did just want to point out my other Disneyversity legend possible pick. Maybe not a Disneyversity legend, but I just like them. I like seeing the two little sluggos just slugging off the boat when the Ark reaches safety. Uh, and that is my last word on pomp and circumstance (laughs) i think we need to talk the firebird the final sequence from this film and it's it's another banger this is introduced by mrs potts herself angela lansbury and this is teed up as the big finale of the film it is a mythical story of life death and renewal we're told and for me sam this is the sequence that most directly connects to the original fantasia because i think something we talked about a lot last time was that it was all about the seasons it was about the changing of the seasons it was about nature and natural landscapes going through cycles going through changes and that is absolutely what this sequence is so this begins in a snowy forest with a stag wandering alone through the trees could even be a even more grown-up Bambi, if you want to think about it that way. And this forest spirit nature creature comes to life. It begins as a kind of water creature, a woman with a big flowy cloak of water who then becomes this green forest spirit. She basically starts off as the sentient water from the abyss and then becomes a green nature fairy. So winter gives way to spring. She creates all of this kind of floral green life in the forest Then a big old volcano kicks off and it all burns down. And then she brings life back to the forest again in the wake of the lava flow. So it's it's about the forest going through these changes from winter into spring into kind of a summer meltdown and then being reborn again. Uh, And that felt massively Fantasia to me. Yeah, so in that sense of it being cyclical, it it kind of rhymes with a lot of almost every sequence in the original Fantasia. I want to talk about that a bit more later on. But I think, yeah, specifically, the the sprite character feels very of a piece with the fairies who represent the changing of the seasons in the Nutcracker sequence from that film. But it also very much rhymes with the Night on Bald Mountain sequence, which is the finale to the original Fantasia, mainly through the figure of the firebird who represents the spirit of destruction wreaked by the volcano and Chernobog who even their entrances are almost identical they both emerge from these mountains and they both open one wing after another in a very deliberate way and then they just absolutely kick off I mean just when you thought that Chernobog had maxed out the metal scale 
then you get this phoenix who projectile vomits fire down the side of a mountain, just like a full of fire. And I was like, okay, this has overtaken Chernobog as the most metal thing Disney's ever done. Maybe barring the uh, skeleton sequence from the Black Cauldron. Yeah, and it's it's good, right? It looks beautiful. Yeah. It's the most beautiful sequence. Uh, the whales is a beautiful idea, but I think the way that it's rendered kind of misses that. But this is stunning. It feels very Ghibli. It feels so Ghibli. I have that in my notes. It's, it's like very yeah. Miyazaki. This whole sequence feels like it could be part of Princess Mononoke, which is all about yeah. forest spirits. Yeah, and we've talked about how a lot of Disney's more recent films like Moana and Raya and the Last Dragon and Frozen 2 kind of evoke that Ghibli world of natural spirits and gods and fantasy, and this almost feels like a projection of that, right? You could picture either of these characters as part of the menagerie of spirits in Frozen 2, for example. And yeah, just it does exist in these different tonal worlds, you know, representing the different seasons, then also that period of intense destruction, which have very different colour palettes, but they all feel extremely cohesive, and they're all extremely beautiful in their own right. It's a great one to end on, and also, it is really the only sequence from Fantasia 2000, which does suggest a continuing cycle of death and rebirth. Right? A lot of these segments, rather than being cyclical in nature like those in Fantasia for the most part, are rather telling a story. They're, they're telling stories that have beginnings, middles and ends, that have characters achieving their goals. And often that involves the disruption of a cycle, the disruption of process, which is what, for example, the Flamingo does. Uh, and it's what a lot of the characters in Rhapsody in Blue do, and it's what the whales do, right? It's about change, and it's about doing something different rather than repeating the same thing over and over again. And I think that's really interesting because it fits well as the end of the Renaissance for that reason too. A lot of these stories are about moving on to something brand new, but they've chosen to end it with the Firebird, which is maybe also a nod to like optimism towards the future. Like maybe Disney is gonna change. Maybe we're gonna make dinosaur. You know, maybe <laughs> we're gonna make the Emperor's new groove. Maybe we're gonna try out some different things. But in some ways, the cycle will continue, and in, in some ways, it has. But yeah, it's interesting this shift. If we, you know, the, the most obvious difference for me between the types of films that we see in these two movies is Fantasia isn't really about story. It's about mood and it's about tone and it's about these little segments of broader cycles. And this is about story. And it's interesting as well that the only Fantasia sequence that is story oriented is the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and that ended up being the only holdover. So that's a very clear delineation for me. Yeah, this is the end of the Renaissance. They are burning it down, they're seeding new life, and who knows, maybe that is signalling for whatever the next era is, more projectile vomiting phoenixes. I've got my fingers crossed, Sam. Got my fingers crossed. Okay then, that brings us to Discarded, which normally would mean us digging up the weird, strange things that didn't make the final movie from the original tales. I mean, that maybe feels like it doesn't necessarily apply to Fantasia 2000, or does it? Well, yeah, we've got one story here which is adapted from a prior source, which is the Steadfast Tin Soldier. It's a Hans Christian Andersen story. And oh, that guy, he's behind the... <laughs> 
creepy jack-in-the-box jester after Ariel and her feet being stabbed by knives. Yeah, exactly. More Hans Christian Andersen drama. Okay, so is there equally dark, weird stuff from his uh, Little Mermaid era in the... What was it called? The Little Tin Soldier? Steadfast Tin Soldier. That is what he is. He is steadfast. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of messed up. Like, actually... The story that Disney tell is very, very similar. The Steadfast Tin Soldier is in love with a ballerina. There's a jack-in-the-box goblin monster who tries to steal her away. He ends up getting lost in the sewers and eventually, in a circuitous way, finds his way back at the original house and is found by one of the little boys who own the pack of tin soldiers. And that is where these two versions of the story diverge, right at the finish line. Uh, Instead of winning the day, defeating the -the jack-in-the-box and getting the girl, I'm just going to read this from one of the translations of the Anderson. Presently, one of the little boys took up the tin soldier, after the founder, Mm. and threw him into the stove. (laughs) He had no reason for doing so. Oh, what? Yeah, just randomly chucking toys into stoves here. It says he had he had no reason for doing so, therefore it must have been the fault of the goblin who lived in the box. <laughs> that is terrible storytelling. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I think, suggesting that the jack-in-the-box kind of possessed or otherwise influenced the boy right. into throwing the soldier in the fire, wherein, quote, the heat was very terrible, but whether it proceeded from the real fire or from the fire of love, he could not tell. I reckon it's the fire, personally. Yeah. I think it's the fire that he's embroiled in. Is he's like, is this burning, burning fire? Is this burning love? No, it is burning fire. Get out of the stove. What are you doing? And then, of course, suddenly the door of the room flew open and the draft of air caught up the little dancer and she fluttered right into the stove by his side and was instantly in flames oh, and was gone. Hans Christian Andersen is so emo. I can't handle it. <laughs> He's a real sickle. And they melted into the shape of a heart. Okay, that's that's nice, I guess. Wow. Yeah, so that's it. That's all you're getting. And they didn't do that. They changed the ending. It's just a happy love story. I would have... You know, again, one of the themes of this movie is like endings, right? The original Fantasia, it's kind of about beginnings. It's about creation, whether that's the evolution of life or the antics of the Greek gods or the fairies creating the seasons or Chernobyl creating all sorts of messed up stuff. And this movie is kind of about endings. So all of these stories have distinct endings, definitive endings. And what is more definitive than that? I really think this would have thematically fit with Fantasia. Fantasia 2000 as it stands. Sam, don't we all just end up in the furnace in the end? It's very Toy Story like 3 of it. in there right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay then, so that is discarded. Uh, let's talk about reviews. Was this a critical hit at the time? Were people up for a second dose of Fantasia all these decades later? Yeah, the reviews generally lean somewhat positive, but acknowledging that it's an extremely mixed bag. Most agreed that The Firebird and Rhapsody in Blue were the standouts, Correct. but the others all received their share of criticism. So Variety said that overall it was too breezy and lightweight, like a light buffet of tasty morsels rather than a full and satisfying meal. It's the kind of criticism a lot of anthology films come in for. New York Times said it has the feel of a giant corporate promotion whose stars are there simply to hawk the company's wares and not especially innovative in its look or subject matter, which I do think I disagree with. I think yeah, it feels a bit mean. Yeah, there's visuals here which in various ways are innovative, whether it's just for Disney or just with the Tin Soldier for the industry in general. 
But I do think it's interesting that the New York Times end with, despite its title, the film is really a compendium of familiar Disney attitudes and styles, one that looks more to the past than to the future. And, you know, we talked about how the title itself is that combination of past and future, and I would disagree with that. I think what we actually see on screen, as we've said, is is a a mix of of the Disney of the present, the Disney of the past, and the Disney yet to come, like a little Disney Christmas carol. (laughs) Hey, there's been a few Disney Christmas carols. We should do some podcasts about those. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I enjoyed this overall. I think it helps that it is a full hour shorter than the original Fantasia, which you know, itself was a statement and, as we discussed in that episode, feels like, hey, that's not a movie you casually throw on on a Tuesday evening. That is, let's get dressed up, let's go to the cinema to see this special presentation and, you know, watch it with intention. This is much more digestible, I think, just through being shorter. I think there's a great amount of variety in it. And I just like that, obviously, it took them 60 years to get here, But after decades of pure narrative features, Disney gave themselves the space to make interesting experimental stuff like this. It doesn't happen very often. Like, it hasn't happened since. We get bits of Disney shorts here and there, but this has some really interesting, wild stuff in it. Like, I I think I'm going to remember, especially as we said, the Firebird, the Rhapsody in Blue sequence, absolutely... That stuff felt really fresh and vibrant to me now, 23 years later, let alone when it was first released. So, I mean, I'm not going to rush back to watch the entirety of Fantasia 2000, but this felt really worthwhile to me. I don't quite know what star rating I would put on it. Maybe it's like a three and a half. I mean, you have a couple of knockout five star bits in there. You have some slightly underpowered bits, but it's just over an hour long. It's, you know, not going to take a huge chunk out of your day. And the rewards from seeing the great bits feel worth shouting about, you know? Where, where do you sit on this? Yeah, probably about the same. I think you've got to go somewhere around three stars overall, just because it is a mixed bag. It doesn't have, for me, the consistency of Fantasia, and obviously it's not as innovative or as historically significant or as ambitious as Fantasia. And I don't think it's cohesive as Fantasia either, but some of that comes from the fact that they have given people a bit more free reign to do what they want, and there's a broader range in terms of the kinds of stories that are being told and in terms of the styles that are being used to tell them. So I think probably it works better as if you don't think of it as much as a feature film and more as just like a compendium of shorts, if this came out on like a Blu-ray of Disney Animation Studios shorts next to things like Paperman, you know, the more recent individual shorts that they've produced, I think it would work a bit better and I would look at it a bit more fondly. But as a feature film, which is positioning itself as a companion piece to Fantasia, it just falls short of that benchmark and it doesn't diminish the original film and it complements it in a lot of really interesting ways but yeah it's just not on the same level i think i'm around a three okay then what about the box office at the time you said this was a limited release cinemas aren't having to get fantasound for this but (laughs) did it make more money than the original fantasia back in the day you know what? It's not a million miles away from the Fantasound situation <laughs> really? in terms of its uh, distribution strategy. So it was initially released in December 1999, as was said, in the form of a series of lavish live concerts in major cities around the world. So it was like a live orchestra accompanying wow. it, which is super cool. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see it in that context. 
And then in January 2000, it began a four-month IMAX exclusive release window, and it was the first animated feature shown in IMAX. So that's one way in which it is actually quite historically significant. And the idea was to make it feel like a major event in the same way that the Fantasound sound system and Roadshow release strategy did for Fantasia. But what they clearly forgot is that that strategy was disastrous for Fantasia. (laughs) So maybe it wasn't the best thing to try and emulate. So they had this exclusive deal with IMAX, whereby their cinemas would only show Fantasia 2000 for four months. Obviously, IMAX wasn't as ubiquitous then as it was now. There weren't as many IMAX theatres anyway, and there weren't many films being produced for IMAX either. So that wasn't as crazy as it would sound today, but it was still pretty crazy, including the fact that they couldn't reach a deal with the LA IMAX theatre, so Disney built its own temporary IMAX theatre for $4 million just to show Fantasia 2000. I mean, it's, it is it is kind of Fantasia all over again. Like, you're sinking so much money into the distribution of this, let alone the production of it. How is it supposed to be profitable? Yeah, that is absolutely bonkers. I can't believe they did that. <laughs> they built a whole IMAX cinema just to show Fantasia 2000. So, you know, by that standard, this release was kind of a success. It made $64 million during this exclusive window, becoming the highest grossing film in IMAX at the time. Although, again, that's not necessarily saying much. But, you know, that sounds kind of impressive. On its wide release, it bombed. It only made a further $26 million on its wide release after that four-month period compared to $64 million in IMAX. So, I mean, that is disappointing, but also this protracted release schedule, I think, probably stilted rather than built up hype for the wide release because for a lot of people, it felt like, oh, yeah, it's that thing that we've either been to see or we've already decided we don't care about because it came out four months ago. Yeah, I mean, this one feels like it was created for the sake of it existing more than for it to be a massive commercial hit, you know? But the IMAX strategy definitely didn't help by the sounds of things. Okay then, for the last time in the Disney renaissance, that brings us to Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character, and in the case of Fantasia 2000, a little bit of a lasting legacy for this film. It feels like no one talks about Fantasia 2000 anymore, which is a bit of a shame considering the absolute banger stuff in there. But does this live on in some ways, Sam? Yeah, I think crucially it hasn't produced the kind of characters that the original Fantasia did that remain iconic and pop up. Like, they still rinse Chernobog in all sorts of Disney villains merchandise. Obviously, Sorcerer Mickey is a lot more popular than Noah's Ark Donald as like an outfit for that character. You've got the broomsticks, you've got Hyacinth Hippo and Ben Ali Gator, two of my low-key faves. <laughs> it doesn't have the bench of beloved characters, so you are relegated to like a couple of cameos in House of Mouse, like all these movies get. The Yo-Yo Flamingo is in a couple of episodes, uh, the Tin Soldier and the Ballerina make a background appearance in a episode called Goofy's Valentine's Date, which sounds like sounds, sounds like one I want to see. Tokyo Disneyland had a parade called Jubilation with a float shaped like the spring sprite from the Firebird. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was, it was a giant, you should look that up. It's like a giant version of her body, basically. And then underneath it, you've got kind of nature-adjacent characters like Pocahontas and Miko and uh, Tigger and 
Brad Rabbit from Song of the South. And you know, other than that, that sounds like a pretty cool float. California's Disneyland had a parade called Parade of the Stars with a float shaped like the whales from Pines of Rome. So that's pretty nice as well. There's also the All-Star Movie Resort in Disney World, Florida, which has a Fantasia Hotel. And there's a Fantasia section and a Fantasia 2000 section where the statues of, of the characters from the Steadfast Tin Soldier and a, a little kiddie pool based on the Pines of Rome with little whales and stuff. Aww. So yeah. Yeah, that's kind that's of nice. nice. But I think the real important lesson legacy of this film and of the Fantasia franchise, stuff that we wouldn't get a cover on this podcast otherwise, are the various short films that are a result of attempts to create another Fantasia movie. Oh, Fantasia 3000 was in the works at some point? What was that? Well, it was going to be called Fantasia 2006, oh. which doesn't quite have the same ring to that it. It's absolutely shocking. It presumably didn't happen because somebody said Fantasia 2006 and everyone went, eh? <laughs> yeah, so that that was abandoned. Like They the threw together a bunch of pictures for other pieces of music and other stories and other animation styles that they could use, but it never quite came together. But there are at least four films that made it far enough through production that they thought we'll just finish these and bring them out on their own terms. So for example there's a film called One by One which uses a piece recorded by Lebo M which was cut from The Lion King. Oh cool. Which is sort of a torn poem about African children making and flying kites which is really cute. Oh that's so cool. Like a yeah, bit of extra Lebo M. Yeah. That's nice. It's, it's got a sweet kind of unique animation style and that is on YouTube in fairly low quality. It was on The Lion King 2 DVD weirdly enough uh, and that's the only one of these which isn't on Disney Plus. The rest of them you can all go and watch in, in high quality right now. So there's a film called Lorenzo, which is great. It's about a puffed-up uppity cat whose tail gets a mind of its own and tries to escape his body. It's sort of like Evil Dead 2 with a cute cat. Yes, into it, sold. That's got like a really cool, like jazzy aesthetic to it. There's another horrendously depressing Hans Christian Andersen story, but this time they do keep the ending, the dark ending, which is The Little Match Girl. Uh, and that is a really sad story about a homeless girl. When, you know the little match girl? Does that ring any bells? No, but I'm guessing she also burns by the end. Art uh, freezes. Quite the opposite. Ooh, okay. Yeah, so that is like a really beautiful piece of animation. That's on Disney+. Plus. And most intriguingly, most bizarrely, and most impressively, there is Destino, which is a film that was originally conceived in the 1940s as a collaboration between Walt Disney and Salvador Dali. Right. This gets teased in the film itself because in the Bette Midler bit, she's like, hey, we also almost did a short with Salvador Dali. And he's like, that's... I can't believe you're bringing that up. It feels like that's something to be like really awkward about, that like you nearly collaborated with Salvador Dali and that would have been amazing, and then it, you just didn't do it? Why have you mentioned that in the middle of this movie? I want to see that now. But So they actually completed that. Yeah, they completed that. So Roy, when they were researching this movie unearthed the concept art and and the storyboards for this film i think there's a tiny piece of completed animation which is included in the version that they made so this was completed in 2003 it's not quite about baseball as a metaphor for life which is how 
Bathhouse Betty saw Archley put it in the film Fantasia 2000, but it, there is a little bit of baseball involved and a lot of other stuff that is basically completely indescribable, but it's got a great piece of music accompanying it. It's like nothing else you've ever seen for Disney, and you probably haven't seen it unless you've sought it out on Disney+, Plus or you saw it in front of the US release of the movie Calendar Girls, which is one of the strangest combinations of short and feature film that I have ever heard of in my life. What? So you, in America you rocked up to see Calendar Girls and... It began with this Disney Dali collab experimental animated piece that almost was in Fantasia. That is bizarre. That is wild. Oh, that sounds really cool. Well, let's make sure that we put some shout outs for those shorts on Twitter to remind people to go and see those. And I will have to check those out. You can do a Destiny or Calendar Girls double bill. They are both on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> you won't even have to leave your app to get that experience. Just as Dali intended. <laughs> And that is it for this week's class and for the Disney Renaissance era. I can't believe we've done it from The Little Mermaid right up until now. We made it, Sam. We've done it. Another era down. Uh, I really hope you guys listening have enjoyed going through this incredible set of movies with us. For me, it's been a joy not just to revisit those Disney films that I grew up on in the early part of the Renaissance, but also to discover this kind of wild back half of the Renaissance that just doesn't get talked about enough. Films like especially Hunchback of Notre Dame and Tarzan, I think, will really stay with me. As ever, the end of this era does mean we're going to have a brief break from the regular schedule. But I know we've said this before, truly, I don't think this is going to be a particularly long break. Uh, So don't worry too much. And as ever, there will be more on the way to keep you going. We have our upcoming study group episode where we'll be capping off the Renaissance for good looking at what comes next, including we haven't yet decided the name of the next era. We'll discuss this more in the study group itself. But yeah, the Disney Renaissance is a thing. There are many options for what we could call the next set of episodes, so we'll be talking about that. And we'll be ranking all the films we've just watched in this era. So if you want to hear our ranking of the Renaissance movies, teeing up the next era and all that and more, make sure to listen to the study group and there may be other bits of bonuses on the way too. Also, at the time of recording this, we don't have all the details yet, but we are once again going to be at the London Podcast Festival in September. Hugely excited to be doing another live show. You can listen to our previous live episode from the London Podcast Festival last year on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It was an absolute blast. We had a lovely audience. We had so much fun discussing that film and we're going to be doing it again. We, at the moment, as I say, don't have the details and aren't ready to announce what film we're going to be doing yet, but we will be doing another Disneyversity adjacent movie live in person in London. We would absolutely love you to be there please do have a look at our social media and we'll have links for you to buy tickets we would love to see you there we want you in the audience to come and have a blast with us so do look out for more details on our live london podcast festival date coming soon it's going to be in september 2023 come down to london come and see us we would love that so with all of that we will be back before you know it and ready to delve into the next year of disney i'm excited In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, it really helps. 
It helps spread love for the show. It helps put us in the podcast charts. They're affected by reviews and star ratings and things. So whether you have a few minutes just to write some words or just to tap the stars on whatever app you're listening to this on, that makes a huge, huge difference to us. Uh, And if you fancy doing that, we'll secure you and a plus one, your very own spots on Donald Duck's Ark. For now, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. The end of the Renaissance. I can't believe it. Can't believe it. But do you know what also I can't believe, Sam? That you forgot, Pete. Oh, oh no. Oh, I'll never live that down. Bye. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.